month. We are doing a, a very difficult uh, month, which is called uh, Hard Questions About the Bible. Hard Questions About the Bible. And so we've decided to, to, to really start to tackle some really difficult, hard questions. Now, I know that means that it might be problematic for some of us because we don't really want to talk about these things or maybe we don't really want to hear maybe what the scripture has to say about it as well. I understand that. But as we're going through these difficult topics, I want you to understand that I put as much work into this as possible. I've been studying this particular topic today and all the topics this month, I've been studying them for years. That doesn't make me an expert. But I do that because I want to really know the truth and I also want to treat each of these topics with the respect that they deserve. Because I do believe that they, 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 they demand a lot of respect and a lot of effort to investigate them. And the more I really got into this topic of homosexuality, because that's what we're gonna be talking about today, I want you to understand that I want to approach this with as much sensitivity as possible. And there are, there are several things I want you to really understand. The first one is this, I have no intention of offending anybody. The Bible says in Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I really believe that. I subscribe to that. I think that's really important. But as much as we have no intention of offending you, we also have no intention of keeping you from the one who offends you. And that's Jesus Christ. In Matthew 21, 44, it says, anyone who falls on this stone, which is Jesus Christ, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The fact is, Jesus is not a safe God. He's not a tame lion. He is unsafe because he is also our judge. Yes, he has given us mercy and he's given us peace, but he also will mete out judgment to us on judgment day. So we don't approach God with a lackadaisical manner, we approach him knowing fine well that he is a holy God that demands holiness. The third thing I would say is we have created, we may actually be creating more questions through this series than we are answers. I don't have a problem with that because I think it's good to have better questions. I think it's good for us to investigate more of what the truth is and pushing in more into God. I wanna to get to the place where I get to go, I go, I know it all. I don't wanna to get to that place. I want to know the one who knows it all. I don't want to know all, I want to know the one who knows it all. And the last thing I would say is today, I'm gonna to be using a very generalized term and it's homosexuality. I realize that the LGBTQ plus community is much wider than that, but scripture doesn't really take into account LGBTQ, it just uses the word homosexuality. I realize that's a catch-all term. It's not meant to be an offensive term or to leave anybody else, uh, anybody else out of what we're talking about this morning. It's just, it's simpler to say that word than it is to actually try and name every person that is in that community. And before we can discuss homosexuality, there are three things I really want to be very clear about. The first one is this. We must agree on three different things to have a productive conversation about homosexuality. And the first one is this. Is there actually a God, right? We have to be clear on that. I know we're in church, but maybe you're not clear about whether there's a God. Maybe you're a truth seeker. Maybe you're trying to figure out what is the deal? Is there a God? Why is that important? Because we have to establish an agreed, reliable source of morality before we can actually have a proper conversation about this. If there is no God, then everyone's opinion is valuable 
and every reason everyone's opinion is valid, and we are all living in a relative world of relative truth, meaning what's true for you is not true for me, and my truth is my truth, even if it completely disagrees with each other. So if we don't actually believe that there is a common God, then having this conversation with homosexuality, it's absolutely moot. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you say. It's whatever you want to do. That's the freedom that you have. The second thing I would say is this. We have to answer this question. Which God's morality, if there is a God, which God's morality should we follow? Because there are many gods that are claimed out there, right? It's not just the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. In fact, I could even say that scientists even have their own God. How is that so? Well, they believe in the God of science. You see, a God is not necessarily someone who is personal or personable. It could literally just be a higher power. Now, if a scientist just decides to jump off the cliff, he cannot overcome or violate the law of gravity, right? Even if he becomes a plane, he has to actually appeal to a different law in order to overcome the law of gravity. We can't overcome the God of gravity. Why? Because it's more powerful than us. It's more powerful than me. So everybody has a God. So we have to actually find out which God morality are we agreeing on. Now, if you believe in a completely different God, then the conversation of homosexuality is again very moot. It's very kind of, there's no point because you're drawing from a different morality source and I'm drawing from a different morality source. So really, whatever I'm gonna say today doesn't matter. But there's a third question that we have to answer. And that is, if we agree that God of the, of the Old Testament, Yahweh of the Old Testament, is the God of the universe, who's made the heavens and the earth and he's the only God, then what does the Christian God actually say? What does the Judeo-Christian God actually say? And so the big question I want to answer today, and I'm gonna go into many different questions, and can I just make this really clear? I want to make sure I will do everything I can to fit within my allotted time, but I will not speed this up and miss out some things because I believe we need to give the proper amount of time to give this topic the respect that that is due. So thank you ahead of your time for your patience. But here's the big question. Is there room for homosexuality in the body of Christ? Is there room for homosexuality in the body of Christ? That's the million dollar question right now for many people. And I believe, I've just found out, I believe this is LGBTQ history month or something. I'm really not aware. I'm not really up on uh, the, the things that they celebrate really. But I want to answer this question. Is there room for homosexuality in the body of Christ? Well, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 19, verses three to 12. This is Jesus a story about Jesus. Some Pharisees came to him, Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, What God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is making a very narrow statement of what God's original intention for his design was. And that was for a male and a female to be in a loving, committed, sexual, uh, relational uh, marriage where they are one with each other. And he appealed to the beginning. He appealed to the way that the Father had designed things. And then he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one change what God has designed is what Jesus 
as literally just said. Now, maybe for you, that's now the end of the argument about homosexuality. It's not the end of the argument for me because I believe it it warrants much more investigation to understand what this means. Then he goes on. Why then? The Pharisees asked him, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce. Notice that, he didn't say the father permitted you. He said Moses, which is really one, is, is, the, is the leader of the, of the nation of Israel back in the day, right? He was the one who, who was able to receive the 10 commandments from God, the, the ways of God. He received them in tablet form and then he gave it to the people. So Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So here we are, Moses has permitted you Now, I know that this is not talking about homosexuality. I know it's talking about divorce, but follow me here. He uses the word permitted, which basically means to make room for, to give give the ability for someone to do something without being rejected from the community, without being necessarily rejected by God. So you can see that Moses is making room for this. It implies then, can we actually make an extrapolation? Can we make an equation here that if Moses gave people the permission to be divorced, which is against God's original design, can we then somewhat assume that God would give permission for people to be in committed homosexual relationships, even though it wasn't his original design? It's a hard question, right? Jesus carries on and he compounds it. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So he's saying, if you divorce, you're committing adultery, unless you've had immorality in your marriage. So Jesus has made some room himself. Moses made room for divorce. Jesus has actually made some room for divorce here as well. He has made a permission. He has given a permitment, a permitment. He has permitted, that's another word I just made up, right? He has permitted there to be some divorce as long as it was for sexual immorality. Now, here's the problem I have with some of the interpretation of the scripture. The first one is this. Jesus makes it very hard to justify divorce outside of sin, very specific sin, which is adultery. That's the only permission he gives for divorce. Now, this prevents, sorry, this presents a very much a big challenge for the church. Why? Because in the church, we have about 50% divorce in the church as well as the world has 50% of the divorce rate. So we're not exactly living a more holy life when it comes to marriage and divorce than the world actually is, right? So, So this is a challenge for us because is most divorce caused by the sin of adultery? Well, the answer is no. Most divorce is actually caused by irreconcilable differences. It basically means I don't like you, you don't like me, we don't get on together and we don't want to be together anymore. You see, if, if it's not sin, then maybe there are most divorces are actually outside of what God gives permission for, what Jesus gives permission for. Now, please be very clear. I am not trying to condemn or offend or, 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 or put down anybody here who has been through a divorce. I've got it in my family, on both sides of my family. I have divorce in, 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 in our wider extended family. But it seems that we tend to, as Christians, prefer the way of Moses, where we're given permission to actually divorce under law rather than appeal to divorce under the, 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 the stress of adultery that Jesus gave us. 
right? So my point is, Jesus gives a very narrow window when it comes to divorce. My point is this, if Jesus makes little room for divorce, what room does he make for homosexuality, right? We've gotten comfortable in the church with divorce. Maybe we're not as comfortable with homosexuality, but we have no right to be comfortable with one and not the other. You follow me so far? We have no right to condemn one and then, and then be okay with the other one. That would make us Christian hypocrites. And we cannot afford to be hypocrites in front of the world. We have to be honest about what is true and what is good. Now, if you've been through divorce, let me tell you, it doesn't mean your life is over. I get it. Maybe you were the one who was abandoned. Maybe you're the one who did the abandoning. The point is we have to get back into relationship with God and figure out what is the right steps forward. Jesus now is going to make this more complicated. So if you thought it was difficult to try and figure out what we're talking about now, it's gonna get a little bit more complicated. And I wish that Jesus had just left this out, but he didn't. He must have done this for a reason. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Now in this day and age, I would probably tend to agree that this is what most people's, this, this, this next present generation's belief is. Why get married when we could just live together? What's the point, right? And here's, here's the disciples going, if it's this hard, why should I get married? I should just stay single. So then Jesus gives this commentary on it that is really complicated and it's confusing. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who have chosen to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Uh, the one who can accept this should accept it. What on earth is he talking about? Does anyone know what a eunuch is? Oh, you do? Good. I'll explain it to the rest of you. A eunuch is a guy who gets his, his testes cut off, right? Now that doesn't sound like fun to me. I don't know if like you, but a eunuch. And Jesus is like, well, if you're a eunuch, if you've got your nuts chopped off, then you can accept this teaching. What on earth is he talking about? Well, here are three etymologies of what a eunuch is. The first one is this. A eunuch is one who guards the bed. That's what it means, one who guards the bed. What does that mean? Well, in, 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 in bygone days and you know, thousands of years ago, what happened was when you had a king or a queen, they would always have like an inner court and they would have servants that would serve the inner court. And what he would do is maybe the king would actually have a multiple wives, but he would also need to have guardsmen, guardsmen who were strong. But he didn't trust the guards. So what they used to do is they would get a guard who was big and strong and he would cut his nuts off in order to make sure that he wouldn't have the desire and he could trust that this guy wouldn't sire someone that he didn't want as a competition, right? Because the last thing kings want is competition. If he's gonna have competition, it better be his own son, not some other son that went through the queen. Does that make sense? That's what a eunuch is talking about. Now, is Jesus talking about if you've got your nuts cut off, then maybe you can accept this teaching. No, here's the second etymology of this word. That is one of good mind, onus, one of good mind. That basically means someone if you're able to take away the testosterone of a man, then he doesn't have the sexual drive. And so therefore he wouldn't be looking at the queen or the, 
or the king's concubines as, as, as a sexual fodder, right? So he wouldn't have a, a sexual desire for, for women or for even other men. And so if they take away his drive, then he would be someone who's of good mind. Now, let me tell you this. The Catholics actually believe in this. I don't mean that they actually try and remove uh, their, their testes, but what they believe is when someone decides that they want to become a priest, they, may, they must become married to the church because the church is the body of Christ. They must become married to the church and they must uh, uh, commit to being a virgin for all their life. They must commit to not being in any relationship with anybody else other than the church. They are of one, they're one of good mind. Someone whose mind is only on the spirit, only on the church only on Jesus, not on his own flesh. The last one is the one that could introduce us a new understanding. And that is one who is deprived of mating. Now, you would say, well, isn't that the same as the one who guards the bed or one of good mind? Well, yes, it could be. But there's also room here for people to look at it and say, well, is this to do with homosexuality? Because if you actually have a relationship with someone who's of the same sex, then you actually are deprived of the ability to have a child because you can't actually mate in such a way that you're able to create offspring. So maybe what Jesus was doing here is he was actually referring to homosexuality and he was saying some are born that way, some are forced to be that way and some have chosen to be that way. And if anyone can accept it, then he should or she should accept it as it is for your life. Is that what Jesus was actually referring to? There's an author called Berger A. Pearson and he suggests this. And when Jesus was using the word eunuch, it was very much a hyperbolic use of the word. What he was saying was anyone who decides to be a virgin and to not be put into the temptation of, uh, of adultery or the temptation of running away with another person, they should accept that for the kingdom of God. Now you could say, but how do you know he's actually talking about virginity? How do you know, how do you, how do you know he's not talking about these three things right here? Well, Jesus did talk a lot in hyperbolic language where just in a few verses, sorry, in a few chapters before that, he talks about advocating plucking out your eyes, right? You know, pluck out, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck out your eyes. If your arm causes you to sin, cut off your arm. Is that what Jesus was trying to advocate? Was he trying to advocate being so brutal to ourselves? No, it's hyperbolic language. And the same way in this scripture, I believe that in Matthew chapter nine, he's promoting the sanctity of sex and marriage. That's simply what he's doing. He's promoting the sanctity of sex and marriage. The next question I want to answer is this. Is there a difference between sacred homosexuality versus perverted sexuality, homosexuality? Now, this is an important question to answer because the fact is there are many denominations now that start to uh, accept and endorse homosexuality. Before it used to be very, you know, very, you know, very rejected in the church. It was a very much a hot potato and you couldn't go close, to, you couldn't go near that. You couldn't be homosexual and be a Christian. Well, now churches over the last few decades have started to say, no, we believe you can be homosexual and you can actually be in the church. Okay, that, that, that's fine. That's what these denominations said. Well, now we've gone to a place where they're now actually saying that you can be homosexual and you can actually be a priest, but you can't get married. Well, now in the last five years, some denominations are now saying, no, if you are homosexual, you can be a priest and you can get married. Now, that's what they're saying. Now, they have to actually come up with scripture that backs that up. 
And let me tell you, I have read it all. I have really studied this quite significantly. And there are two specific scriptures that I want to look at today that are problematic for us, but I want you to understand how they're actually looked at. We're going to look at Romans chapter one, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, if God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Okay, you could say they've, 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 they've served created things, which you could say is perverse things instead of uh, 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 worshiping the creator, which is the sanctified thing, right? There's, the, there's the, the, the difference there. And it goes on, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, what does it mean when it's saying exchanging natural for unnatural? Now, historically, it has been, it has been implied, it's been interpreted that what they've done is the natural is to be a man and a woman and they've exchanged it to be woman, woman and man, man, right? That's the, that's the often the, the, the common interpretation of this. But maybe it's implying something else. Maybe it's implying that this is not about, uh, this is not about uh, um, committed homosexual relationships. This is about perversion that is happening within homosexual relationships. And there are many theologians, many Christians, many churches who are starting to, describe, who are starting to subscribe for this very thing. Maybe he's actually talking about something that he had mentioned earlier on, which is temple prostitution. You see, in those days, they used to have temples and in order to go worship God, you actually had to have sex with a prostitute. And so he's speaking out against this saying, no, not only don't have sex with a prostitute, don't have sex with a prostitute, even if it's a male or a female. He's actually condemning male prostitution here. It's not about loving, committed, homosexual or lesbian relationships. That is now the new approach that people are having to try and understand the scripture. Let me do one other scripture that we'll look at before I go into commentary of this. The second scripture is this. Or do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, not swindels, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here is Paul, again, writing to a completely different church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very metropolitan uh, um, city and there was lots of different religions coming together, different types of people. And they had a major temple as well where they were able to actually have sex with the prostitute in the temple in order to offer themselves before God. Now, the word uh, men who have sex with men is actually a Greek word, which is, I'll pronounce this probably, is arsenokotai, which basically means men in beds, right? Now, men in beds sounds like they're just sleeping. No, we can understand it means men together with each other uh, having sex with one another. Now, many people actually believe that this, is, this again is referring to slack sexuality, which is adultery. It's like the adultery, right? So slack sexuality in my life would be adultery against my wife and having sex with another woman. 
Well, when it's talking about men having sex with men, it's talking about perverted sexuality amongst men and it's not talking about the committed relationships that they should be having together. Again, possibly this is referring to temple prostitution, which was very common in those days. The, 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 the homosexual argument that has been put forward is that this is the bad version of homosexuality. You follow me so far? The problem that I have with that interpretation is that there isn't a good version of anything else that is listed on this list. There isn't a good version of idolaters. There isn't a good, ver I'm sorry if that's painful for you, the child that's crying right now. So. There isn't a good version of idolaters. There isn't a good version of adulterers. There isn't a good version of thieves. There isn't a good version of greedy. There isn't a good version of drunkards or slanderers. So it's very difficult to actually give the room for this word, arsenikoitai, men who have sex with men. It's very hard to give it room that this is a description of a bad thing when all these things are actually all bad in and of themselves. Does that make sense? Now you can say, well, alcohol's not bad. You know, having sex is not bad. That's true. But he doesn't say drinking alcohol is bad. He say drunkenness is bad. You see, you see what I'm saying? Now we can talk about that more. There's maybe more to be teased out in that scripture to truly understand it more. I'm not necessarily an expert on this. My problem with a lot of the interpretations of these last three sources of scripture that we put together right now. There are three stumbling blocks that I have when I'm actually studying these scriptures and trying to figure them out. And the first one is this, there is no clear endorsement of homosexuality by Jesus or by Paul. There's no clear endorsement that there is a good version of those things, right? Now you might say, well, Maybe, maybe the disciples edited it out. Maybe they curated scriptures and they decided they didn't want to talk about that stuff because that's awkward. Maybe, maybe they did, but I don't have evidence that they did do that. And the other thing is with the disciples is that they were very honest about their own inadequacies. They were very honest about their own sins and how they rejected Jesus and, and how, they, how they hurt him and how they weren't there for him. They were very honest about themselves. So I wouldn't see that they would have any reason to not be honest about other difficult topics in those days as well. They, Jesus could have said something. Paul could have said something about good homosexual relationships, but they didn't. And we don't know why they didn't actually comment on it. The second thing I would have to say about it is that Christ is very clear on God's original design. Now, you might say, it's, well, that, that, that's, that's neither here nor there. It's just talking about God's original design. That doesn't mean he's not saying homosexuality is wrong necessarily. But I have to say this, is did he forget to be clearer? Did he get to be clearer and not include homosexual relationships? He was very proactive in promoting women who were downtrodden in those days. He was very proactive in promoting the poor. He was very proactive in promoting the rejected and even children. He was very proactive to pick out people who had been rejected and abandoned by society and he raised them up publicly in front of people, but he never did this with homosexuality. That's another stumbling block I have to subscribe that Jesus does promote this. The third thing I would have to say is this, is that in, in scripture, homosexual, the word homosexuality is never a noun, it's always an adjective in the New Testament. What does that mean? It basically means scripture only talks about the act, it never 
considers a person as a homosexual person. They consider them a person who is doing homosexual acts. Now take that as you want. I believe it plays into the, the bigger picture of our understanding, whether you think that supports or, 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 um, or uh, opposes your position or your opinion. I'm just giving that piece of information to you because I think it does come into play. All right. What do I believe about this as a pastor, especially of this church? What do I believe as a Christian? I'm not here to tell you what you should believe, but I have a responsibility not only to understand what I believe, but to be able to lead by example. I'm not here to say you have to do or agree with everything I'm saying. The first thing I would say is this. I don't see enough evidence in scripture that supports monogamous committed homosexual relationships. I don't see it. I know there are many churches that are now subscribing to this. I've studied it as much as I can. I can't see it. Maybe I'm too dumb. Maybe I'm just, I'm not putting enough work into it, but I can tell you I'm working on this constantly to study this stuff. I don't take it lightly, but I don't see the evidence. If anything, I believe that scripture condemns the act of homosexuality. Now, let me make that clear. A person can have homosexual desires but scripture never condemns a person who has those desires. It's not there. It only condemns whenever there is a practice of the desire, when there is an action of the desire. That's important to me because I think it's very easy for us to, <coughs> to actually, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to sideline anyone who has these desires. The fact is we are humans in this human, sexual, uh, physical flesh and we all have sinful desires, myself included. The second thing I would say is this, that homosexuality is not a worse sin compared to other sins. That's really important because for, for many, many decades, years, hundreds of years, it has been that the church has actually condemned anyone that got divorced like it was the unforgivable sin. In the same way, we've condemned homosexuality like it's the unforgivable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. Scripture doesn't say that to me and it doesn't show that to me then why then does God allow all these desires to exist and then tell us not to act on them? Why would he put you in the position to have these homosexual desires, but then he goes up, oh, but you can't act on it. It seems like a very cruel God, right? But here's the thing. We all have desires that we're not permitted to act on. Even as men, we have desires, and sorry ladies, but we have desires to actually have sex and to mate with more women than just one. That seems like a horrible, horrific thing. It's not God's design. I know that, but that is the sin that is within me. That's the desires of my flesh. And if that's true, then shouldn't I just follow the desires of my flesh? No, God says, no, I don't want you to do that. That's not the way I originally designed you. Now, some might argue, but love is love. <clears throat> Love is love, come on. Why is it so bad that two people should not be allowed to love one another when it's actually about love? Doesn't God tell us to love? Yes, he does tell us to love, but he puts limits on how we're allowed to express that love. For instance, I'm not allowed to have a romantic relationship with a child. Scripture does not allow us for that. I'm not allowed to have a romantic relationship with someone who is not my wife. I'm not allowed to have a romantic relationship with my sister, with my mother, with my mother-in-law, or with any other person. I'm not even allowed to love myself above God, Scripture says. There are limits on what we're allowed to love when it comes to love. So love is not just love. Love has to be in the context of what God's love is. You follow me so far? Okay. 
I've got two more things I want to say. The third thing I would say in all my studies and understanding of this, the third one is this. The church has historically failed at discerning the difference between an act and a desire. Now, Jesus did say that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you may as well have just slept with her. He did say that. But there is a different consequence to each one of those things, right? If I, if I lustfully look at someone, I may not be ma- losing my marriage straight away. But if I go run off with that woman, you can bet your bottom dollar, my wife's not gonna be hanging around for me, right? Now, maybe you have, maybe you have a much higher capacity to overlook that. But the fact is there is a huge difference between the act and the desire. Homosexuals have been treated very badly through the years. It's very true. In fact, years ago, I remember in the 1980s, there was a huge um, pandemic that that, that really swept uh, through the homosexual community in Britain. It was called AIDS. And I believe it was in America too. I don't really know the history of America. But it really swept through Britain quite significantly. And of course, many people were very much afraid of this because they were scared that if they touched someone who was homosexual, who had AIDS or something, that they could get it. They used to even talk about how stupidly that if you shared a toilet with someone who had AIDS, then you would actually get it as well. And so homosexuals became very, very badly treated. And my father came across a man in England who had started this ministry called ACET, A-C-E-T. It's called AIDS Care Education and Training. And he saw what he was doing and he said, I want you to help me to set up an office in our city so we can start reaching out to the LGBTQ uh, community in order to try and help them to overcome this stigma called AIDS. And so he started this ministry in that time. And let me tell you, the amount of people we were able to reach simply because we started to love people who were reviled and rejected by the community and worse than that, were rejected by the church. And if anything, the church should be the one who knows how to reach out to people who are not loved by anybody else. The question is this, do we love the homosexual community? I'll never forget the story of the daughter. His name was, um, shoot, what was his name? Dr. Patrick Dixon was the founder of this, of, of this, this group called Asset. I'll never forget when he was in my dad's church and he was, he was telling the story about the, the ministry and the work that they do in the homosexual community. And he talked about how he actually gotten to know Freddie Mercury from Queen. As many of you, you remember the band Queen. And as Freddie actually contracted AIDS, he was starting to die. And he, he, uh, he actually called Dr. Patrick Dixon to come and see him in his dying days. And Patrick Dixon was talking, he was telling this testimony. He said, and I went to Freddie's house and I spoke to him about God and I asked him, you know that you're going to be coming close to close one-on-one. You're about to meet the Father. You're going about to meet God. Do you, do you feel that? Do you know that? And he said, yes. And he said, would you like to give yourself and submit yourself to God the Most High? And he said, yes. Now there is no record out there in public history of the community knowing about this. It wouldn't have been in the movie, but from the very mouth of that doctor, I heard it from him and he said, and on that day, I led Freddie to Jesus. I led him to Christ and I believe I'm gonna see him in heaven. That's the type of love that we should have as a church for the homosexual community. At the end of the day, what you're doing is what you're doing, but I would rather that you got into a relationship with God and you figured out how to live His way. But I first and foremost want you to get into a relationship with God. Here's the last thing I'm gonna say this morning. You are free to do whatever you want. 
God has given us the permission of free will. If you want to be a Christian and you want to subscribe to homosexuality and you want to live that life, God has given us that power to have that free will. And I want to confirm that and affirm that. You're free to do as you wish, but you have no right to change God's mind on it. This is something I want you to be very clear on. You are free to do as you wish because that's what a loving God does. He gives you the permission to make your own choices. But that does not allow you to change his position or his mind. That's problematic for me. There's lots of things that I love doing. There's lots of things that I desire to do. But at the end of the day, I can't change God's position on it. Because I know someday I will stand before a God that will weigh up what I have and have not done. And I know I'm gonna, I, I, I'm not fearful for you, I'm fearful for me. Because I have to stand before a God and I've got to answer for all the sin that was in my flesh, that was in my heart, that was in my mind, and that was in my actions. That's the position I stand in. The only reason we're attacking this, this question of homosexuality in scripture is because we want to find truth so that truth sets us free. It's not to control you. It's not to tell you what you should do. It's to help you to discover what you believe that God is telling you through scripture so you can live out life to the full. I hope today that you've been able to take this in the spirit that we presented this. This is not to polarize or to push people away. This is for us to find truth so that we may be able to love each other more than before, that we might be able to walk in the freedom that God has given and afforded to us through the cross of Christ. Father, this morning, I pray that you would change our hearts. You would change our hearts to understand what you want, to run away from self-opinion, to run away from hurt, to run away from rejection, to run away from division, but to run to those that we may be disagreeing with, to embrace them and to love them, just as you did Jesus to us. When you ran to us, you became one of us and you ran to us and you gave yourself for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the voice of love, to have the hands of love for those who live in this world, who live in the LGBTQ plus community. You love them because they're made in your image. And I pray you would help us to be the disciples that you're proud of as we love them and lead them to what your word says. We ask this in your precious son's name. And all God's people said, Amen.